seaweed snacks, herbal tea in Serbia, and hemlock that's not poisonous. This week, it's all about foraging. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is the place where we explore the world's great dishes and drinks at DestinationEatDrink.com and on the Destination Eat Drink podcast. And this week, we're picking our own dinner. It's all about foraging. Mushrooms in the forest, fruit trees in the city, greens along the railroad tracks. It's all right there for the taking. But first, if you like food and travel, make sure you subscribe to the Destination Eat Drink newsletter. I keep you updated with all the happenings here at Destination Eat Drink headquarters, not just on the podcast, but also on my blog where I post new stuff all the time, as well as the Destination Eat Drink YouTube channel where we're constantly trying delicious food and drinks, sometimes here in Portugal, sometimes in other places. You can sign up for the newsletter at DestinationEatDrink.com. Okay, I'm starving for some free foraged food, so let's eat. Destination Eat Drink. Vesna Placanis is a naturalist, forager, educator, and the owner of a Walk in the Woods Great Smoky Mountains tour company. She talks about foraging in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and how to tell what mushrooms you can eat and which ones will kill you. Well, it's it's so much fun. I spent an entire day in the rain looking for my you know wild edibles. I got everything from dandelions to morels to you know wild onions. Um, all kinds of stuff. So I had a, I made a, um, a quiche with, uh, with fried dandelion heads, um, morel mushrooms. I had, uh, chanterelle mushrooms from last year that I dehydrated. I put those in there. I had, um, uh, wild onions in there and, uh, dock. I put some burdock in there too. Uh, and then I also made a, uh, wild onion goat cheese, uh, flatbread, um, also with my wild mushrooms. And um, then I had a salad that I made with vinaigrette and I did everything from red buds to um, violet leaves to violet flowers to dandelion greens. I had some plantain in there. I had a little bit of uh, hemlock tree, uh, just the, the tips of the hemlock needles. Uh, what else did I put in there? I put a bunch of stuff in there. So it's just a lot of fun to feed people things that you don't tell them what they are until they're done eating. And it's a complete and unexpected happy surprise. You know, that brings up several questions in my mind. The first one is hemlock. Poisonous? Good question. Poison hemlock is an annual that looks a lot like Queen Anne's lace. And the settlers used to confuse the two. Uh, Queen Anne's lace is actually our wild carrot and uh, hemlock looks very similar. But if you put the wrong thing in your stew, you're killing your whole family. 
What I eat, what we were putting in there is a hemlock tree, which is a completely different animal. And that was something that was very sacred to the Cherokee people. That's how they survived uh, the Trail of Tears. About 1,500 Cherokee escaped into the Smoky Mountains. And uh, they basically survived off of the beneficial uses of a hemlock tree. Uh, the inner bark is full of carbohydrates. You can make instant rope. Um, it serves as a really nice uh, shelter because it's like an umbrella. Um, if you make a tea out of it, which I also made for my edibles class, uh, one eight-ounce glass is uh, has more vitamin C than an orange. Um, so it's it's a beneficial, very nice. And then the tips this time of year taste a little bit like rosemary. Wow, sounds fantastic. I never knew there were two different, the hemlock tree and the hemlock plant. Interesting. And you mentioned another plant that I'm not familiar with, uh, Burdock? Was that what you said? Yeah, you have different types of docks. Uh, actually, I've, I've got two docks uh, for my edibles class, but I did the burdock and the curly dock. Once you saw it, you'd if you'd recognize it, it's something that we look at as a weed. It kind of grows in um, areas that are sort of wet, seepy areas. They're uh, long. Um, they they almost look like well, they're long, uh, dark green, and they have red in the middle. So you might confuse them maybe with like a rhubarb, um, but it's a, it's, it grows basil, so it grows right from the ground. It doesn't have a stem. Um, and uh, it's, it's like a spinach substitute. You mentioned your morel mushrooms and your chanterelle mushrooms. The question that always comes up when we talk about mushrooms is, how do you tell the difference between mushrooms that are going to be delicious and mushrooms that are going to kill you? All mushrooms are edible once, <laughs> but I tell people there are old mushroom hunters and there are bold mushroom hunters, but there are no old, bold mushroom hunters. Um, and so there are simple ways to identify mushrooms. Um, and, and there are some that once you get to know them, you can't confuse them with anything else. But I highly recommend if you're just starting out to a, go with somebody who knows what they're doing, um, but also stick with the more common, easy to identify ones like puffballs or oyster mushrooms um, or morels. And once you really kind of get to know those, then you can expand out into, you know, the larger world of mushroom hunting. Um, there, there are, of course, lots of field guides, uh, you know, ways to identify mushrooms, including um you know, they're the most of the mushrooms that cause mushroom poisonings are either the LBMs, the little brown mushrooms, um, or the amanitas, which um, have a cup on the bottom and a veil. And so if you kind of learn to identify that, that discards a big majority of your mushrooms that are going to be dangerous. Um, and then sort of get to know the ones that are common. Where do they grow? What season do they grow in? Um, you know, what are their shapes? Uh, what type of trees are they associated with? Because all green plants have mushrooms that are associated with them. Um, and then get a great identifying uh, identification guide. I love Audubon. We've got Peterson's. We have a bunch of different types. Uh, and then do a spore print. That would be the last sort of de definitive way to identify a mushroom. A spore print is basically like a fingerprint that a mushroom leaves. What about these online uh identifiers for mushrooms. For example, I've seen things where you can take a picture of it and it will tell you what kind of mushroom it is and whether it's poisonous or not. Have you seen these and have you tried to use them? I've, I've used them not 
at, for my edibles classes, they're definitely an assist in identifying plants, but I would not rely on things like that. I, I have an entire library of books and I'll look at maybe three or four, especially if I'm not sure about something, I'll look at three or four just to match them up. You know, why take a chance? Katie Parla is a New York Times bestselling author and tour guide based in Rome. She talks about foraging for greens in her adopted hometown. You know, that reminds me of when we took a train from Rome over the mountains to Abruzzo. And just you talk about the greens just outside of Rome, we saw a transit worker. I could tell because he had the he had the vest on, said that he worked for the rail company. But he was just wandering along the side of the tracks and he had like his vest kind of out and was picking what looked to me to be wild arugula. Maybe it was something else, but it looked like wild arugula. Probably chicory. Chicory, too. Could have been chicory. Yeah. And just gathering it in his vest, I thought, this guy is brilliant. You know, he's, he's, he's working right now, but he's planning for dinner or maybe for lunch tomorrow with his fresh greens. You don't have to even go to the rail lines to do that. You can harvest them in any park in Rome. The Circus Maximus is filled with them. And there's, there are wild chicories and arugula all over the Forum and Palatine Hill, the Aventine, and definitely that park in my neighborhood that I mentioned earlier, the Villa Pamphili. Okay. So going to Rome, put one thing on your checklist, forage for greens. Yeah. You shouldn't have to pay for your vegetable side dish. Make it yourself. Go, go forage it. Asher Boot is a famous chef in Wellington, New Zealand. He talks about foraging for ingredients to put on his restaurant's menus. Yeah, I mean, we're in peak blackberry season at the moment. So, yeah, I've, I've collected about 20 kilo in the last couple of weeks, which is, what, 40-odd pounds of, uh, of blackberries. Um, I, I, it's about connection to food for me is one of the major things. And, and if you're actually seeing the, the environment that a plant um, grows in, you can have a real connection to that plant and understand it um, straight away. Quality is another thing. You know, you're picking the, the exact items that you want. Uh, for the dish that you're preparing. So being able to really be selective, I guess, in terms of what you're getting is a major thing. Um, so the process-wise, I mean, it's you need knowledge. Knowledge is obviously really important um, with foraging because, you know, there are things out there that can be dangerous and, and you've got to be careful about what you're picking, especially when we get into mushroom season um, is a big one. So knowing what you're about. And I, I just think it's an extension of, of being a chef, of really understanding your ingredients, of, of, you know, knowing them literally from the ground up, how they grow, what sort of areas they establish in, um, and does that make sense in the dish that you're using? Um, you know, being able to take seaweed and, and put it into a bouillabaisse type dish make, just makes so much sense. Oh, that sounds wonderful. What are some of the other things that you like to forage besides the seaweed? You mentioned blackberries, you mentioned the kava, which I'm not familiar with. Uh, what yeah. else do you like to forage? Being, being around Wellington, Wellington is um, surrounded by sea, so um, so many seaweeds that are available and coastal herbs as well. Um, we've got a native spinach in New Zealand um, that really absorbs the salinity around the ocean, so it's sort of seasoned in itself, which is great. Um, there's uh, yeah, different native berries and, and bits and pieces. And then there's lots of sort of trees that came over in uh, colonial times, things like elderflower. Um, is really special um, being able to get elderflower and elderberry when that comes through um, we we do every year mushrooms we're really lucky in terms of um, bullets so uh, things like pushini and birch bullet come up around the city 
um, or further afield um, that we get into. Mary Novakovich is an award-winning travel journalist. She tells me about foraging for herbs in Serbia. Foraging is a, is a topic I'm always interested in. In my town here in Portugal, um, I was talking the other day with a friend about uh, the fruit trees here, and there's a particular fruit. I think it's called uh, commonly called loquat, but uh, we call them here in Portugal nespera. And these things are just heavy with fruit everywhere, and I've been trying to pick as many of these as I can. The fennel has been, the wild fennel on my little walk up to the fort has been everywhere. And there's just the most wonderful herbs and fruit. And so when I was reading your book, I was just thinking, it's so cool how they're uh, foraging for things also in Serbia. I mean, of course, this happens all over the world, but I felt a real connection to this because I love foraging myself. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that they forage, like the plums and the herbs? Yes, of course. Yes. I mean, if, if something is growing, there's no reason why you can't help yourself to it when it's just growing there in the wild. And you have a, you have an awful lot of fruit trees and a lot of areas where, um, the people have, have, have emigrated and, but they've left behind orchards that still have got loads of fruit, groaning with fruit. And so, and, but everyone, everyone would, would have their own orchards anyway. But you would go into the forest, you'd be picking wild herbs, um, thyme, sage, whatever was growing. Um, in fact, you'd, you know, chamomile and rose hips, you'd, you would mm. pick those as well, because then people love herbal tea and, um, rosemary, all of that. And, um, mushrooms when mushroom season comes around. And, uh, and just really whatever, whatever's growing, there's no reason why <laughs> a lot of people in Britain are a little bit, um, you know, they'll walk, they, apart from picking blackberries and hedgerows and, and slowberries to make, you know, usually soy gin, hmm. a lot of them are a little bit fearful of just picking strange you know, fruit that is growing wild. And I have no idea why. <laughs> and, uh, the, and because some of them is, is the loveliest fruit. Uh, there's a lot of wild strawberries that you've going to find in forests. Do they think they're going to get in trouble maybe, or they think I'm going to get poisoned if I eat something that, uh, that I'm not familiar with? I wonder, because I think what? there's kind of the same idea in, in the U.S., maybe in all of North America, this idea, oh, I don't know if I should touch that or not. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you find that, you find that in Britain a lot. And uh, whereas in, in you know, the countries of the former Yugoslavia, you know, Croatia, Serbia, where everyone, if it's, if it's there and it's knees eating, then why not help yourself? Unless you, you don't obviously encroach on somebody else's land and help yourself to their, to their food. Um, unless you're invited, because there's so much of it to go around. <laughs> <laughs> My brother who lives in Los Angeles was telling me there's, uh, so, so this is to me very funny and very, uh, a modern way of dealing with this issue. There's a website where you can go and, um, people have pin marked locations where there are trees that are either free or they're on people's property and they're willing to barter with you for different stuff. And it's like <laughs> for, for a thousand years, people didn't think about this. They just went and picked what was out there. Now we have a website to tell us exactly where to go and to, uh, and to get your oranges or whatever that you want to get in Los Angeles. Yes. I think we sort of moved ourselves in the wrong direction when it comes to food. Kevin Durkee is the big cheese at Culinary Adventure Company and helps guests discover the bounty of Canada. He talks about wild blueberries and foraging for seaweed in Nova Scotia. Well, we're really proud in Canada and particularly in Nova Scotia to be the wild blueberry capital of the world. So Nova Scotia as a province 
and as a region actually grows and supplies the world more wild blueberries than anywhere else on the planet. Oxford is this great town that's sort of a little bit to the west and headed towards New Brunswick, and it's the center, the capital of this blueberry production. And I think it's a distinction to recognize the difference between a cultivated farmed blueberry, which are those beautiful blue, purpley, chubby blueberries that we might find in our morning yogurt and granola. A wild blueberry will be grown in the summertime, sort of mid-July and through August. And they're small, they're firm, they're, they're quite tiny, and they grow on a wild shrub. So they're not farmed in any traditional way. You've got these baby little pockets of this blueberry flavor that are just incredible. And so Oxford and Nova Scotia provide more wild blueberries than anywhere on the planet. So if you've ever bumped into a bag of wild blueberries in your local grocer, local supermarket, there's a 95% chance that they've come from this beautiful region in Nova Scotia. So we're super proud of them. They're incredibly delicious. When I think of wild blueberries, I think of, you know, going out and foraging for them, not having them grown on a farm. Is is that the same idea when we're in Nova Scotia? This would be something that you would go and collect somewhere. That's right. These wild blueberries are more forged. They're more hand collected and, and harvested that way. There is some conventional elements to get them off the shrubs, of course, but they're not done in any sort of traditional cultivated, you know, industrial farm, if you will, smaller plots of land, smaller communities, you know, bringing the blueberries together, making sure that they are um, this really beautiful little purple gem, as I've mentioned, with lots of flavors. So you're finding lots of communities, you know, picking and getting them together and, and making that that harvest really, really important for the province in the summertime. Love it. Um, so besides just grabbing a handful, popping them into my mouth and just enjoying them on a summer day. Uh, are there any producers who are using wild blueberries and doing interesting or delicious things with them? Well, I think one of the great things about Nova Scotia and Canada in general, when it comes to the culinary scene and when you're thinking about chefs, Canada, in my mind, we don't really have a, a type of cuisine. I think the Canadian culinary adventures and what we highlight on our tours is more about the produce. It's more about the product. It's more about the ingredients. And so when we think about the Maritimes, particularly Nova Scotia, blueberries is one of those. So you'll find that chefs across Nova Scotia and elsewhere will use blueberries in maybe a, a deep, you know, decadent sauce for a beautiful cut of meat, uh, venison, things like that. They'll certainly turn them into sweet treats as well. And you'll find that chefs within the region will use them obviously very, very seasonally. One of my ultimate blueberry favorites is an incredible blueberry and almond tart from LF Bakery. Um, it's a little beautiful French-inspired bakery in Halifax. And the owner, Laurent Marcel, um, is French, grew up in around bakeries. He was the son of two bakers from France. When he came to Canada, he settled in Saint-Pierre-de-Miquelon, which is a French territory um, that you know borders Newfoundland. So it really allowed him to get a taste of Canada. And once he sort of arrived here and established here, he found himself in Halifax and this beautiful bakery, LF Bakery, I believe makes the best little blueberry tart on the planet. Beautiful, crisp pastry, packed full of blueberries, nice and sour and sweet and burst a little bit of a glaze. And it's just an incredible treat on a weekend. We're in Nova Scotia and you mentioned, Kevin, you said it's a maritime uh, province. So we got to talk uh, seafood. And one of the things that I found really interesting when I was researching this, uh, getting ready for this conversation was something called, I think it's dulse, 
maybe it's Dulce, uh, D-U-L-S-E, and it's a kind of uh, seaweed, which is getting really popular now. You're seeing seaweed on all kinds of dishes in places that are near uh, near the ocean. Um, tell me about this thing called Dulce. Uh, how is it prepared? What dishes have Dulce in it? How do you try it when you're in Nova Scotia? Yes, Dulce is exactly that. It's a local uh, seaweed that is actually red in sort of this dark um, burgundy color, and it's an edible seaweed. This dulse is actually grown on rocks along the shoreline of, of North Atlantic. So you may have seen it, or maybe even folks in Maine and elsewhere would have seen it or start to enjoy it. I think the real power of dulse is that it is a natural, organic, beautiful product from the sea. It's harvested at low tide between June and September. So we're right in that spot where we're going to be starting to see a lot of it come into not only chef's pantries, but as it's processed and enjoyed. And if anyone's ever, you know, swam in the ocean, you realize how salty and beautiful the water is. And the seaweed has that. You've got that salty bite, that richness to it. But once it's harvested, it's typically dried. And so it's dried into this sort of almost chewy seaweed leather, almost like a beef jerky texture. It's got this chewy snap and this richness to it. Um, It's incredibly healthy. One of the things that's really powerful about it is that it's got a massive amount of vitamin B6, B12, iron, and all the potassium that you could possibly enjoy. So many producers are just harvesting it. They're cleaning it up, they're drying it, and they're putting it into little bags, very much like a beef jerky or something that is a snack, chewy and enjoyed. Many are using it like uh, kombu, where you are taking it and uh, like a Japanese preparation putting it into a stock or into an incredible broth and bringing that salty flavor forward. Maybe you're making a broth for a beautiful seafood dish or, um, you know, tossing it in with some mussels to give a little bit more of that earthy, incredible flavor that's coming from the sea and that richness. But my preferred way to enjoy it is just sort of au naturel. Um, as I mentioned, grab a little bag that has been dried and ready to go. And it's a beautiful, salty little snack to enjoy anytime through the summer. Sounds delicious. I love that brininess of it, but also you get that chewiness. Uh, that's why I love uh, sea- seaweed as a dish. And also, like you mentioned, it has so many nutrients in it. It's so good for you, and it's super sustainable. So this is a this is a great. Di- I I'm convinced seaweed is going to be the next big thing that we start seeing in the culinary world if it isn't already. It's certainly there, Brent. You're absolutely right. And, you know, Dulce and, and what we're producing in the East Coast of Canada is going to be part of that complement that we get to look at. Many of these not only have the incredible nutrient values that I mentioned, um, but some, you know, seaweeds around the world are providing, you know, great sources of protein, um, other ways to sort of coagulate and to enrich and to gelatinize lots of other things as well, because the structure of this incredible seaweed has that chewy, beautiful um, firmness and that can be brought in so we don't have to use animal gelatins and things like that in, in flavors and ingredients and recipes. So uh, the sea is going to feed us in the years to come for sure. Okay, there you go. And remember, if you're going out foraging, make sure you know what you're doing and consult with an expert. Poisoning yourself and your family would ruin your weekend to say the least. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks to all my guests who were on the show this week. I've got links to them in the show notes. Get that at radiomisfits.com slash DED231. 
Next week, we're in one of the greatest culinary cities in the world, Seville, Spain, for some of the best tapas you can imagine. Don't miss that. Until then, head over to DestinationEatDrink.com. I just posted a new story about the Sintra National Palace, a place a lot of people skip when they go to Sintra, Portugal, but I'm making the case you should put it on your itinerary. Read that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. And just in time for next week's episode about Seville, I just posted a video about my favorite bars and drinks in Seville. Get that at DestinationEatDrink.com and click on the videos tab or go to my YouTube channel at YouTube.com at DestinationEatDrink.com. Nine four six, And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and review us with five stars on your podcast platform. Thank you so much for that. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and a guy who forages for scotch in the bars of Chicago, Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson, and I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink. A presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. 